And this week we're back in our study on the life of Jesus. And what, what I love about Jesus is that he's infinite. He, he's infinite. He's God. And so his, his word is infinite. No matter how many times you go back to it, uh, you're going to find something new or you're going to see something anew. And today we're going to see Jesus from a very specific angle. We're going to look at his authority over the spiritual realm, the place the Bible calls the heavenly places, the spiritual world. You know, one of the most commonly shared beliefs around the world, uh, across humanity, is in the existence of evil. You'll find many people who claim not to believe in God, but it's really hard to deny the existence of evil, that there is a force at work somehow in the world that is behind evil. And you'll find people who aren't open to God, but are willing to concede that there is such a force as evil. And so today we're going to see what happens when Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, crosses paths with the kingdom of darkness and they have a head-on collision. So let's dive into our study. We're in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 31. Verse 31 starts out, Then he went down to Capernaum, speaking of Jesus, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them, the people there, on the Sabbaths, on the Sabbath day. And so you might remember from our last story, which was about five weeks ago, that Capernaum is about four hours away from Nazareth by foot. Uh, and Nazareth is Jesus' hometown. And for this part of his ministry, Jesus had relocated to Capernaum about a four-hour walk away. And he was using it as his base of operations in northern Israel in, the, in this region called Galilee. And Capernaum is about 600 feet below sea level. The Sea of Galilee, uh, which Capernaum is on the shores of, is the lowest uh, body uh, of water in the world, 600 feet below sea level. And so when you were going from Nazareth, which was about 1,200 feet above sea level, you really were going down to Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum is a prosperous fishing village, and there's about 240 towns and villages in the area around Capernaum, and Capernaum's the center of them all. Roads go out from Capernaum to all these different towns and villages, and so Jesus chooses this place as his headquarters. It's also the home of the, the fishermen and disciples Peter and Andrew, who are brothers, and James and John. And the Gospel of Mark tells us that on this day, Jesus was teaching in the synagogue. Uh, In future studies, it's going to be interesting to note that the synagogue in Capernaum is actually built by a Gentile, which is really unusual, and we're going to meet him. He's the centurion in Luke chapter 7, and one of the rulers of that synagogue is a man named Jairus, and some of you might remember the story about Jairus' daughter, who Jesus encounters in Luke chapter 8. Those are both characters that are going to come up in a future study. So Jesus is in the synagogue teaching on the Sabbath in Capernaum. What's the response to his teaching? Verse 32, it says, And they were astonished, underline astonished. They were astonished at his teaching, underline teaching. For his word, underline word, was with authority, underline authority. They were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. And the word astonished there doesn't mean, wow, it's pretty good stuff. It means shocked. It means panicked. They were absolutely flabbergasted by the way that Jesus was teaching. They were floored. And that word authority is going to be key to our study today. You might remember uh, a couple of weeks ago we mentioned the Hebrew word for authority is shmika. It's just a really, really good word. Sounds like the name of a, a Hebrew rapper or something like that. But But these men who have heard Jesus speak, they're used to hearing from scribes and rabbis, religious leaders and teachers of the day, and they all generally taught what other rabbis taught. It was all 
third, fourth, fifth generation knowledge that they were simply regurgitating back to the people. But Jesus was teaching from a direct relationship with the Father. A direct relationship. It's the difference between talking to somebody who's just seen a movie and talking to somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who saw the movie. That's the difference. When Jesus talks, it hits them. He's speaking from first-hand experience with the Father. There's something profoundly different about this, and everybody realizes what's going on. And, And the great news for us today is that God's Word still has the same effect today. And when we take in the words of Jesus ourselves directly, we too will be left in awe. And just as it was then, it is now. It is life-changing when you hear the words of Jesus for yourself. Don't be somebody who only ever hears the words of Jesus when somebody else speaks them. You need to hear him speak for yourself. And so I want to encourage you, even though we're all battling losing an hour of sleep, start your week tomorrow by hearing from Jesus for yourself. It's just different. It's just different. Let's go on. Verse 33, it says, Now in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice saying, Let us alone! What have we done with you, Jesus of Nazareth? And then underline this. Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are. And then underline the Holy One of God. You see, this is not a psychological problem. This is a spiritual problem. An actual malevolent, demonic being inhabits this man. And in the Gospels, the demons always notice Jesus immediately. They always notice him immediately. Notice that the demon speaks out in the plural. He says, let us alone. So there's more than one demon possessing this man. And I wonder, do you realize that some of the most compelling and clear testimony about who Jesus is comes from his enemies in Scripture? You're going to see it with Pilate. You're going to see Pilate declare Jesus right before his crucifixion to be completely guiltless. You're going to see the powers of darkness testify to who Jesus is. Write this down. You see, they recognize who Jesus is, and they testify that he's the Holy One of God. The demons confess Jesus' sinlessness. He's without sin. They call him holy, and they also confess his deity. They say he's of God. The demons confess this. And in crying out, did you come to destroy us? The demons confess as well that Jesus has the power to destroy them. They testify to the power of Jesus. Here's his authority being revealed even by the powers of darkness. In verse 35, we go on and it says, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, so this man convulses, it came out of him and did not hurt him. What Jesus is is actually saying in the original language to the demons, he's saying, be muzzled. Shut it. And the reason Jesus does that is because at this time already, the religious leaders are spreading rumors that maybe Jesus is empowered by Satan. And so even though what the demons are saying is true, Jesus is the Holy One, the sinless Son of God, Jesus is saying, I appreciate the endorsement, but... uh, I'm not really looking for a reference from a demon on my resume, you know. Nobody really wants to say, you know, I'm the son of God as testified by demons. Pretty good references. So Jesus just says, just be quiet. Shut up for now. Keep that to yourself. 
Verse 36, it says, Then they were all amazed, underline amazed, and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word this is. You might want to underline word. For with, and then underline authority and power, authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. When they say, what a word is this, what they're really saying is they're saying, what, what a doctrine this is, what a theology this is, because everything that they understood about demons and the power of Satan had just changed in an instant. You see, at this point in history, exorcism was, was not a thing. It wasn't a thing. It didn't really happen ever. When, when somebody got demon-possessed, it was pretty much, well, I guess Fred's going to live in the wilderness and wander around naked yelling at people as they drive by on their camels for the rest of his life. That's pretty much it. Outside of a miraculous move of God, there's, there's nothing you could do for them. They're just written off, essentially. And out of nowhere, here comes this man, Jesus. He's interrupted by a demon-possessed guy. You know, the, the Pharisees and the other leaders are probably looking for the four biggest guys to physically remove this guy. Jesus just says, come out of him. Be quiet. And they're floored. Jesus has this authority that they've never, ever seen before. It's unprecedented. Verse 37, it says, and the report about him went out into every place surrounding the region. Of course it did. Of course it did. Let's continue in verse 38. We shift gears. It says, now Jesus, he arose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house. This is Simon Peter, who we'll come to know as Peter. Most Bible scholars believe that Simon Peter lives basically across the street from the synagogue. Simon Peter and Andrew are brothers, so, so this is pretty much where they both lived. And the Gospel of Mark tells us that James and John are there for this interaction as well. But I want you to hang on for a minute here because Peter's house was in Bethsaida. He's in a town named Bethsaida. It's another coastal town. But here we find that Peter's house is now in Capernaum. So what does this mean? It means that Peter moved lock, stock, and barrel, fishing business, in-laws, the whole thing. Peter moved from his hometown to where Jesus had his headquarters. Peter moved. He packed up and moved. He left the place of occupational prosperity and security, had a good thing going, to be where Jesus was. And I think we'd all do well to remember Peter's example because one of the most troubling things about many of us as as modern-day Christians is that when we're weighing up enormous life decisions, we're very meticulous and diligent to weigh the financial impact of our decisions. We're very careful to do that. If we're going to move somewhere, we need to find out what do houses cost, what does rent cost, what's the cost of living. We give very little attention to the spiritual impact of our major decisions. We very rarely ask before we move somewhere else, hey, hey is, is there a group of believers there that's solid that I can belong to where I can serve and grow in the Lord and do life with? Peter put the spiritual consequences of his life's decision above everything else. Everything else. You know, just last week, in, in the last week of our End Times mini-series, we read about a man in the Old Testament who based the decision as to where he would live on economic decisions. He lifted up his eyes, he saw green grass, and he said, this is, this is a great place for my cattle. And that man's name was Lot. He got in a lot of trouble because the green grass was right outside of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a great place to raise cattle, It's a lousy place to raise kids. 
Lot lifted up his eyes, but he didn't, he didn't really lift them up high enough. And, and Peter did just the opposite. He said, I want to be where Jesus is ministering, in the place most conducive for me to follow Jesus, serve Jesus, and walk with Jesus. I pray we'd all have a heart like Peter's. You know, we've talked about what an epic screw-up Peter is on a pretty regular basis through, throughout his life. But Jesus ends up telling Peter, I'm, I'm going to build my church on you, on you. And he does. Peter ends up pastoring the Jerusalem church, one of the most important churches in all of history. But in moments like this, we see why Jesus saw that in Peter. Because before almost anybody else, Peter was all in with Jesus. He was all in. He bet everything he had on Jesus. I love Peter for that. Let's go on. It says, but Simon's wife's mother, so Simon Peter's mother-in-law, was sick with a high fever, and they made a request of him concerning her. The request is basically, Jesus, will you heal her? And so when I have the opportunity to, to correct a misperception using Scripture, I kind of feel like I, I have a responsibility to do that. And I just want you to know I'm, I'm not out to offend anybody. Uh, I just want to show you something that's right here in the text. Peter was married. Peter's married. And the reason this is interesting is because uh, our Catholic friends who I love dearly suggest that to be a good spiritual leader, you have to take a vow of poverty and celibacy. But they also teach Peter as the first pope. Peter had a wife, he had a mother-in-law, and he had a house, and he had a business. I don't want to beat the point, but I just want to point that out. He had a wife, he was married, he had a house, he had a business. You know, Luke, the writer of this gospel, is a doctor. And let's just throw this out there right now. Luke is not one of the original 12 disciples. He's not one of the 12. Luke is a traveling companion of Paul's. He's, he's a medical doctor who travels with Paul. And so he's documenting the life of Jesus. He does the research. He knows all about the symptoms. And his diagnosis is that Simon Peter's mother-in-law has a life-threatening high fever. And so Jesus is asked to heal her. I don't know what Peter's relationship is like with his mother-in-law. So I don't know if he was pleading or if Peter was like, Jesus, uh, you know, my wife wants me to ask if you could heal her mother-in-law. If you're too tired, I understand teaching is draining. Uh, you know, God is sovereign, and who are we to interfere? I completely understand. I'm gonna, I asked Jesus, can't know it. Jesus says, I'll do it, and uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. So it doesn't tell us what his relationship was like with his mother-in-law. But did you notice this, that they've just been at church. Jesus is speaking. It's pretty good because people are astonished. They get home and walk immediately into a challenging situation. This is, this is life, just again and again and again as a believer. Spiritual mountaintop. Good message today? Yes, Jesus Christ preached at my church. It was a good Sunday. Straight home into a health crisis. Family member dying with a life-threatening high fever. Have you ever noticed that you go from a spiritual high to Satan doing everything he can to distract you and derail you? If you're married, have you ever had a Sunday where God's just moved? You have an argument with your spouse on the way home. You're like, well, that lasted a while. You know, I was profoundly changed. I went 10 minutes being holy, you know, before I screwed up again. And all I want to say is this. You can write this down. The solution is to take Jesus home with you. Take Jesus home with you, just like Simon Peter and Andrew did. You know, I, I really believe that when we gather together at the church, this is supposed to be the culmination of our week. The way it's supposed to be is we're all supposed to have our own individual relationship with Jesus. 
And we get together once a week to celebrate that. And how often is it the total opposite of that? We have no relationship with Jesus during the week and then we get together on a Sunday for a lifeline. And then we wonder why it's such a struggle through the week. And the reason is we we didn't take Jesus home with us. We just left him at church. We can't wait to get back because that's where we left him. We can't wait to see him again. We need to bring him home with us. Because when you do, anything's possible. Verse 39, it says, So he stood over her and, underline the word, rebuked the fever, and it left her. Then underline this, And immediately she arose and served them. She arose and served them. Jesus rebukes the demon in the synagogue. Now he rebukes the the sickness in Simon Peter's house. And then later in Luke 8, he's even going to rebuke the weather. He's going to rebuke the weather. This is authority like no one had ever seen before. I love the little note in this story that Simon Peter's mother-in-law responds to her healing by immediately going to work serving Jesus and his disciples. She immediately goes to work serving Jesus and his disciples, the other followers of Christ. I love that because she embodies a perfect understanding of why we don't die the moment we get saved. Maybe, maybe you've wondered this before, okay? If heaven is so much better than earth, why don't we just die the moment we get saved? You know, let's just get this over with. This is the rest of life is a formality. So, so why doesn't that happen? It doesn't happen because serving Jesus and his church is significant. It's significant. Because it's not always easy. It's significant because we can't yet see Jesus face to face. So greater faith is required. It's significant because this life gives us a small taste of what Jesus went through on our behalf. You know, we'll worship Jesus forever in heaven. We'll worship him forever. But this life is the only opportunity we have to say thank you to Jesus by the way we choose to live our lives. I really believe that that's what life is for. This life is to be lived as a response to what Jesus has done for us. And my prayer for all of us is is we live lives that shout one thing to God, and that's thank you. Thank you. We want to live lives that scream thank you to God by the choices we make and the way we choose to live. She arose and served them. You know, when Jesus has saved you, when he's delivered you, when when he's healed you, when he's freed you, you're going to want to see him do the same for others. When you understand what Jesus has done for you, it'll be obvious that you understand it because you'll want to see the same thing happen for other people. And so when we claim that Jesus has saved us, he's redeemed our lives, he's redeemed our eternity, but we have no interest in partnering with him and the work of his kingdom, I think we have to question whether we really understand what we've received in Jesus. Because I noticed that Simon Peter's mom, she, she doesn't rise up from this life-threatening situation and say, you know what, um, I know you guys need serving, but you know, I've just come from a, a really life-threatening situation, and I need some time to just reflect and be with me and, and, and get my head together you know, before I really get involved. She just goes to work serving Jesus, not out of guilt, because it's her natural response. The natural response to being miraculously saved by Jesus, the work of Jesus in our lives, the only response that's genuine is, Jesus, what can I do for you? You've done so much for me, what can I do for you? If we're saved, if we're delivered, if we're freed, if we're healed, and there's nothing in us that says, what can I do for you, Jesus? Do we even understand what's been done for us? 
Do we even understand? The rest of our lives should be about that one question. What, what can I do for you, Jesus? What can I do for you? Verse 40, it says, When the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. You see, when the sun set, uh, Shabbat, the Sabbath day was over, and so they were now free to walk. They were free to travel greater distances, free to carry people on stretchers. So as soon as the sun sets, people flood to Jesus. We see people uh, asking him to do healings and deliverances. Very interestingly, though, no man shows up with his mother in law asking Jesus to heal her. It's just a small, interesting aside. But in verse 41, it says, And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. Underline the Christ, the Son of God. And again, we see the demons confess that Jesus is the Messiah. They call him the Christ. Christ is just the Greek for Messiah. They call him the Son of God. So clearly, word of Jesus' authority over demons has already spread, and people are bringing their possessed family members, friends, and acquaintances to him for deliverance. In Matthew's gospel, where it records this same story, it says that Jesus healed people and cast out demons that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. It's from Isaiah 53. It's one of the most incredible messianic, prophetic writings in all of Scripture. So everything that's wrong with us, our fallenness, our sin nature, our sickness, our physical problems, Jesus has made a way so that those things will not be the end of us. Those things no longer have the power to become our identity or our destiny. So why do we still deal with them? Because this is in heaven. This is in heaven. You know, when when Jesus rose from the dead, he took back the title deed to the earth. God gave it to Adam. Adam sinned and gave it to Satan. Jesus died and rose again and took it back. The Bible says that Jesus is not going to cash that in until his second coming so that people have more time to respond to the gospel. People have more time to turn to Jesus before he returns. Don't ever forget that every person Jesus physically healed ultimately died of something else. They all died later. They all died of something else. But there's a healing coming for every believer that is complete and is everlasting. Some people get really weird with this verse, and and they decide that this verse means if you're a believer, you can't get sick. Anybody ever heard this before? Maybe you've seen it on the TV. If you're sick, it's because you don't have enough faith. If you're sick, it's because you're not walking with Jesus, because Jesus conquered sickness. He has authority over sickness. Here's the problem with that. Jesus also conquered sin and death on the cross. So if you're going to teach that if you're a believer, you can't get sick anymore, you also have to teach that if you're a believer, you can't sin and you can't die. There are people who teach the former, but the latter has been harder to pull off. Our hope is in the coming day when sickness and sin and even death will be ended forever. Uh, I can't wait for Jesus to rule the earth. I I can't wait for that. It's going to be amazing. So back to Jesus casting out demons, it says, And he, rebuking them, did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. Again, Jesus says, not really looking for your endorsement. Thank you very much. In addition to casting them out, he shuts them up because they know who he is. And so at this point in our study, I want us to just pause and take a step back and allow some of the things that God's word has revealed to us to really 
sink in. And I just want to illuminate a few things and, and point some things out. You know, we, we've learned that sometimes issues that appear psychiatric or psychological are in fact spiritual. They're in fact spiritual. I said sometimes for a reason, because there are very real psychological problems that we face uh, as the human race. But not everything, not every case, not every problem is psychological, according to the Bible. And here's what I know. I know you won't get very far treating a spiritual problem as though it's a medical problem. So how do you tell the difference? How do you tell the difference? I really believe it's for this exact reason that the Bible lists in 1 Corinthians one of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit is the discerning of spirits, the ability to discern what's of God and what is of Satan. Supernatural gift from God given to believers when they need it, when they're empowered by the Holy Spirit. To have that work, we need to be grounded in the truth of God's word. That's where discernment starts. And we need to rely on the Holy Spirit. We need to seek the wisdom of God rather than ourselves. And so in the Gospels, we will actually see Jesus and the disciples encounter several different manifestations of demonic possession. And these are symptoms of possession. We call them medical, but in these cases they weren't. In in the Gospels, we're going to see schizophrenia. We're going to see alternate personalities. And and I want to encourage you, if you want some evidence that, that this can be demonic, just start paying attention to the number of high-profile entertainers, uh, actors and musical artists who have some type of alter ego. And when I say alter ego, I don't mean like they have a stage name. I mean they're on record talking about an alter ego that takes possession of them and allows them to be this uh, extravagant, charismatic performer. That's demonic possession. That's not schizophrenia. That's not a stage name. That's not an alter ego. That's demonic possession masquerading as something else. We're going to see in the Gospels violence, incredibly violent people who are possessed by demons. We're going to see muteness, someone who has an inability to speak, and it's not medical, it's demonic. We're going to see insanity caused by demonic possession. And to be clear, again, this is so important. I want to be clear that I'm not saying that all these things are always caused by demonic possession. I'm saying that according to the Bible, sometimes they are. And it takes a spirit-filled believer who's grounded in the truth of God's word to discern what's medical and what's spiritual. And it takes maturity to do that. I can't tell you how much it pains me that in every church, almost in the world, there is somebody who's been hurt because they were sick or they went through a crisis and someone in the church decided to come up to them and say, what's your sin? What's your sin? What are you possessed by? What's going on? And it wasn't the case because that is a brutal accusation if you're wrong. It takes discernment. It takes wisdom. And it takes God giving you the ability to speak into that person's life, giving you that platform. So the person who's dealing with a spiritual issue won't be helped by medication or therapy. On the flip side, let's be real for a moment, okay? If your issue is medical, you won't necessarily always be helped by something spiritual. And I say this because I've also seen heartbreaking cases where somebody is battling depression and they refuse to take any medication because they just say, listen, God's going to take care of it for me. And it's been years. And they have a spouse and they have children who need them to function and take care of them. And they can't because they refuse to take medication. Sometimes we need to just take our meds. Let's just be real. Sometimes you need to just 
take your meds. And again, it just falls in this area of discernment. It requires discernment. You know, it's really easy to, to read these accounts of demonic possession and think, you know, that, that doesn't really happen anymore. It doesn't really happen anymore. But here's what you need to know. Uh, it does. It does. And I would suggest it doesn't happen places like here very often because we now have the word of God. We have the example of Jesus. We understand the authority he has over the powers of darkness. There's a demon-possessed person walking around. I'd like to think that sooner or later a Christian would walk up and do business, take care of it. That wouldn't really be productive for Satan. So I don't think that Satan functions that way in a lot of first world countries where, where people sort of have some understanding of the scriptures. Where you see Satan do that is places where there's very little knowledge of the scriptures. You see it in places like Haiti. Some of you have probably actually seen things like this where it can enhance the image of Satan's power, where it is advantageous for Satan to do it. He still does it. He still does it. I think he's a lot more covert where we are. I think there's probably people all over the place who are demonically possessed in places we wouldn't expect, but probably also in places we would, in the entertainment industry, in government, in the halls of power. There's no question that, that Satan is still at work, alive and well today, but it's very, very hard to become the director of NBC if you're foaming at the mouth all the time. So Satan's always going to do what is most advantageous to his agenda. So I think he's more covert where we live today. And if that makes you nervous, let me share this. This is our next point. A believer can be oppressed, but not possessed. A believer can be oppressed, but not possessed. You see, to be possessed means to be owned to be owned. In 1 Corinthians, it says this. Paul says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. If you're a believer, you're already possessed because God owns you. You are his property. You belong to him. Jesus says in the gospel of John that no one is able to snatch us out of his hand. No one. Nothing. It's impossible for a believer to be possessed. But a believer can be oppressed. Well, how do we know? Let me, let me just read you the dictionary definitions of oppress. It means to burden, to lie heavily upon, to weigh down as sleep or weariness does, to put down, subdue, suppress, to put upon or against, to crush, Oppression is just another way of describing Satan's desire to destroy us. Once you're a believer, Satan can't have your soul. So his next goal becomes making you completely ineffective. If he can't have your soul, he doesn't want you to have an impact on anybody else. He's got to go into damage control mode. And so what he wants to do is he wants to destroy your testimony and your credibility. He is going to work overtime to destroy your marriage, to make you do something dishonest at work, to make you live without integrity and your money, to sin, to get addicted to something. That's his strategy. He wants you to have no credibility so that you can't impact anybody else. Deceit is Satan's primary weapon. His primary weapon. Jesus opens and closes many of his discourses in Scripture with the command, don't be deceived. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. It's a command, not a suggestion. And so Satan and his demons will usually do whatever they have to do in order to cast doubt. And it's always doubt over the same things, isn't it? It all comes down to Satan planting doubt in your mind that God's plan for your life is really the best plan. This goes all the way back to Eden. All the way back to the Garden of Eden. What, what does Satan do when, when, he, when he comes to Eve? He says, you know, did, did God really say? 
Did he really say that? Why would God say that? Why would he withhold something from you? Casting doubt on the goodness of God's plan. If you're single, I know that this is where Satan's hitting you up. He's saying, come on, you're really going to follow God's plan. It doesn't need to be working. He's going to cast doubt. Come on, you're going to have integrity in your finances. You're never going to get ahead in life that way. Cast doubt, then he'll use that to confuse you, to confuse you. And from that confusion, he'll deceive you because the goal is to destroy you. That's why discernment is so important. And how often do we lack discernment and wisdom? How often do we say, I I just can't figure out what's going on. I just can't figure it out. Paul spells it out in Ephesians 6. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We're in a spiritual battle. We're not fighting people or companies. We're fighting Satan. And I have two pieces of very good news for you. The first is this, write this down. The Holy Spirit in us is all the power we need to overcome our enemy. He's all the power we need to overcome our enemy. You know, God gave us three things. He gave us his word, he gave us his spirit, and he gave us his church. And sometimes believers are put in situations where they don't even have access to the church. Sometimes they don't even have access to his word, but hopefully they've stored it up. So however God equipped us for spiritual warfare, it has to work here today, has to work for those believers in North Korea, has to work a thousand years ago, has to work 2,000 years ago. That's why I simply don't buy it when as believers we do things like we're going to do a school of the supernatural. One year of training how to handle supernatural things. Uh, you know, what I always think is I always think, you know, it's, it's a miracle of God that the church has survived this long without this apparently vital thing that every believer needs to go through according to your brochure. Every believer should go through this program. Man, how did we make it this far? Man, I'm surprised God himself isn't thanking you for coming up with this idea. And what we do is we love to cr- make things in the Bible that are so simple, more complex more special. I don't think you should confront that demon. You're only a level three. That's probably a level five demon, you know, and uh, you only got your blue belt, so I don't know if you should do this. But we, we find a way to take something that took Jesus five minutes to teach his disciples and stretch it into a one-year full-time school program. All Jesus does is he says, Listen, I'm in charge of all this stuff. Just name drop me. That's what Jesus says. Just name drop me. See what happens. It's essentially what Jesus tells his disciples. So I have to believe that between God's word and his spirit, we're equipped to live victoriously. Every believer has been equipped with what they need. The Bible tells us the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is inside of us right now. In Ephesians 6, Paul gives us the command to be strong in the Lord. He doesn't say every now and then. It's a continual state of being. He says, be strong in the Lord all the time. And then he goes on to say, put on the armor of God. And he lists seven ways that God's equip- God equips us to deal with spiritual warfare against the powers of darkness. You can read it in Ephesians 6. Some of us might need to go back and brush up on that. But it's our responsibility. It's our responsibility to realize the fight we're in and to be strong in the Lord. He's given us everything we need. 
None of us are able to say, there wasn't a school of the supernatural in my area, so I don't know what to do about this. Jesus says, you've, you've got everything you need. The power's in you. The Holy Spirit's in you. Now you just need to read my word to know how to use it, how to exercise it properly. It's a fight you can't win without Jesus. It's a fight you can't lose with Jesus. Second piece of good news is this great news. I love sharing this. There is no comparison between the authority of Jesus and the authority of Satan. There is no comparison. I believe one of Satan's greatest deceptions is he has elevated himself in many of our minds as the counterpart to Jesus. You know, Jesus is good, he's bad. Jesus is light, he's dark. The yin to his yang. They are not at all the same thing. Let me share with you what I mean. Lucifer was an archangel in heaven. He's a created being. Hebrew is benai Elohim. He's created by God. Jesus is the son of God. If you're looking at a species list, next to Jesus, it says God. Next to Lucifer, it says archangel. They are not the same species. They are not to be compared in any way, shape, or form. In fact, Satan's equal is not Jesus at all because Jesus has no equal. Let's get this straight. Jesus doesn't even have a rival. He has no rival. Satan only exists right now by the will of God for his purposes, for his plans. Satan is self-deceived to the point he doesn't even understand. He's just a pawn in God's future plan. Everything's laid out, and it's going to happen exactly the way God said it would. The contemporary of Satan is Michael, the archangel. I love sharing this. In Revelation 12, in John's vision, he gets a brief view of Satan's essentially whole career. And it includes Satan's attempt to take over heaven back when he was still Lucifer, the archangel. In Revelation 12, it says this. I put this on your outline, and I want you to underline something. It says, and war broke out in heaven, and then underline Michael and his angels, Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, and then underline who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. When you read the account of the battle in heaven and Lucifer's insurrection, do you see Jesus' name anywhere in the battle account? Jesus isn't there because he can't even be bothered to get off the throne. That's the distance between Lucifer and Jesus. Jesus says, Michael, go take out the trash. I'm just going to hang here for a while. Doesn't even have to get off the throne. There is no comparison between the authority of Jesus and the authority of Satan. He has never battled Satan. He has tolerated Satan. There's a big, big difference. If you understand this, you'll understand that when we fight a spiritual battle, we fight from the position of victory. Everything you need to know about spiritual warfare begins with understanding the supremacy of the authority of Jesus. There is no comparison. The mention of his name scatters the power of darkness. There's no comparison. That's the beginning point for everything. Write this down. Keep your focus on God's kingdom not Satan's. 
There's a great story in the Gospels in which we see Jesus send out 70 of his disciples. He has this bigger group of 70 outside of the 12. He sends them out in Paris to do ministry. And in Luke 10, it says this. It says, Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I love this, because Jesus is like, of course. And and Jesus says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and that nothing shall by any means hurt you. And then he says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. It's just the name of Jesus that carries authority over the powers of darkness. And Jesus says, he says, don't be surprised that through me you have authority. I was there. I was there when Satan was cast out of heaven. Jesus says, I've owned him since before the world was even made. And I love how Jesus wraps this up. He he basically says, don't get too caught up in this demon stuff. Don't get too caught up in it. Keep your focus on rejoicing that you belong to me and you belong to the kingdom of heaven. You'll notice that Jesus never once in the Gospels turns to his disciples and says, let's go demon hunting. He never does it. Not even one time. He, he, never holds a deliverance sem- he never holds a deliverance meeting. I'm doing a special deliverance meeting. This is a special thing. He never teaches demonology seminars, four steps to effectively dealing with the powers of darkness. He never does it. Wherever Jesus was, the powers of darkness just get restless, and they just expose themselves because there's a conflict between light and dark. The powers of darkness cannot coexist where the power of Jesus is. They can't. And so it's not uncommon still today for Christians to get together and, and go demon hunting. You know, we have a giant rally to pray against demons, to pray against the forces over our city. And the problem is, we don't see this anywhere in the Bible. Anywhere in the Bible. We don't see it anywhere in the Bible. And I think the reason is that God always wants our focus to be on him. You notice that when Daniel is in Babylon and he's praying, He's calling out to God. It takes an extended period of time for an angel to appear. And when the angel appears, he says, Daniel, you know, I left the moment you started praying, but I had to wage war against a powerful demon, and that's why I was delayed. But do you notice that Daniel, when he prayed, didn't pray against the demon. He prayed to God. He prayed for God to move, for God to be glorified, for God's purposes to be accomplished. And I think the reason for that is God says, listen, I'm to be the center of attention. I'm to be the focus, not your opposition, not your challenge, me. And I think even when we pray against obstacles in our lives, it's better to thank God that he's greater than those things. It's better to give God glory that he's greater than those things. And that's what really works, you know, not shouting. Volume is not the, uh, the heel of Satan's kingdom, right? You know, as one comedian said as well, uh, Neither is shrubbery. So even though we pray a hedge of protection, you know, <laughs> it's just one weakness, shrubbery, right? So keep your focus on God. Keep Jesus the center of your attention. Uh, there's power in the name of Jesus. And if you and I are doing our job going around, being light, sharing God's word as we have opportunity, these things are going to come up. They might not be foaming in the mouth, but you might just encounter somebody who is just uncommonly hostile towards you. You're encountering the powers of darkness. Again, you don't need to shout at them. 
You just need to claim the authority of Jesus and pray in the name of Jesus and just deal with it. It's not a big deal. It's not a big thing. In 1 John 4, 4, it says, he who's in you is greater than he who is in the world. Just be the light. So Jesus goes into the synagogue, begins teaching, preaching, sharing about the kingdom. Sure enough, there's a demonic interruption. Jesus just deals with it specifically. He doesn't say, come out! You know, no power in hand gestures either. Jesus doesn't say, hang on, I don't, I don't have my uh, exorcism clothes on. Let me go put on my all-white suit. Then I'm going to come out. Then we're going to do business with the demon. Jesus, Jesus doesn't do that. He just deals with it. We're called to be obsessed with Jesus. We're called to be obsessed with Jesus. In conclusion, I, w- I want to say this. In, in James, it tells us that even the demons believe in Jesus and tremble. They believe in Jesus and tremble. We, we saw that they'll testify to him all day long. They know the truth. They're not going to heaven. They're not going to heaven. And I say that because I want you to know that you can believe that Jesus is the Son of God and not be saved. You can believe that Satan is real and you're in a spiritual battle and not be saved. None of those demons are going to heaven. Salvation is believing in Jesus to save you. That means you are saying, God, I recognize that only you can save me. I cannot save myself. I need you to do that for me. And in return, I will do the only logical thing. For the rest of my life, I'll say, God, what can I do for you? We're not balancing the scales. All we're doing by that is showing that we understand what Jesus has really done for us. The demons are not saved, but they know who Jesus is. Make sure that you don't just know who Jesus is. Demons know the Bible better than you and I do. Guarantee it. Make sure that Jesus is your Savior, that he's your Lord, that you're relying on him to save you, that you've given your life to him. I know it's, it's, it's weird verbiage that you've said, God, I, I want to be your possession. I want to belong to you. And, uh, and then I want to end today by reading from Ephesians because for me, there's just not a lot of things in Scripture better than when Paul just goes off praising God. I've never read anyone who could do it better than him. I think it's even better than the Psalms. It's that the word of God strengthen you this morning. This is what Paul writes. He says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
And Jesus, we just want to acknowledge this morning the same thing that every cell, every atom in the universe is acknowledging right now. That you are over it all, Lord God. You are supreme over it all. You are the center of all things and all things are under your feet. They're under your authority, God. And God, when we realize that, what an amazing thing that you have privileged us to know you and to speak your name, God. And we know that one day at just the mention of your name, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. When you pull back the curtain and reveal yourself, you are God. You are over it all. And so, Father, right now, for those areas in our life that seem to be ruled by chaos, that seem to be ruled by confusion, we speak your authority, God. And we just acknowledge that we are not always in touch with reality. The reality that those things, those situations, those challenges, those burdens are under your feet, God. They are under your feet already. So, Father, I pray you would open our eyes to see clearly your power and your authority. That for you to keep your promises is nothing. That when you speak a word, the universe bends to make it happen. Whatever needs to move for your will to be fulfilled, it moves, God. Whatever walls need to be brought down, they are brought down. By the word of your mouth, God. In the stillness in this moment, God, we, we just praise you. And we bless you. And we acknowledge you for who you are. God, give us a right view of you.